So it's a couple years back, my partner Renee and I decide, you know, it's about time we move to California. Okay, it was a little bit more well thought out than that, but stay with me. So we decide we're going to move to California. We sell off most of what we own. What we can't sell, we get rid of or put into storage. We pack a handful of suitcases and we fly to California. We didn't have much of a plan. We didn't have a goal in mind. We had about a month of supplies with us, clothing, cash, and we needed to find somewhere to stay while we found our footing. We asked a couple of friends, put out a couple of Facebook posts, but really didn't get any hits for the first few days. But on day three or maybe four, we got somebody, a couple who were friends of ours who graciously offered up their home for as long as we needed it. Now, it's important to understand that when I say friends, I don't mean we had grown up with these people or even really had known them for all that long. We had been acquaintances for a couple of years, we had spent a little bit of time together, but this was a pretty big gesture for someone that didn't really know us all that well. So of course, we said emphatically, yes. They lived about an hour outside of the city, so Renee and I picked up the handful of suitcases that we brought with us, jumped on the train, and made the trek down. We hauled our stuff into their apartment and realized that we hadn't eaten anything that day. Conveniently enough, neither had they, and they immediately suggested that we go to one of their favorite local restaurants, a small Korean barbecue place. Not two hours after their initial invitation, the four of us were sitting at a table getting to know each other a little better over plates of bulgogi and racks of short ribs, the smell of chilies, scallions, perfectly seared beef, mixed with the shared stories and laughter. It warmed up the whole restaurant. For the first time in, well, at least a week, we really felt like we were home. And that feeling wouldn't go away. We stayed for three weeks, learning California and really making it our new home. We found our first apartment, eventually moved off of their couch, and started life here. Now, moving across the country is a relatively drastic scenario, but the circumstances surrounding hospitality don't need to be quite so dire to have a meaningful effect. The simple act of sharing a meal can mean more to a traveler, a stranger, or a friend who's simply out of their element than you can ever know. Now, Jonas Wizard's time in Scotland wasn't quite as permanent as our move across the country. But his first experience out of the country led him to a broad exploration of the British Isles through the simple generosity of a community that opened its doors. When I went to college, one of the things that I really wanted to do was to uh, travel abroad. I'd never had the opportunity before. I did have the privilege the summer after my sophomore year to travel to Scotland and volunteer uh, at a place called Archaeolink Prehistory Park.
when I got there the first time, I got off the train, walked into a pub straight out of like central casting, called a cab on a line I could barely hear, and the cabbie had an accent I could barely understand, and found myself on the doorstep of the, of the gentleman I'd spoken to, uh, who it turned out was across the road getting quail eggs from his neighbor and thought I was arriving the next day. Um, I turn up on his doorstep and he's sort of like, who are you? As he's coming back with an armful of quail eggs. And I'm just sort of like, I'm the volunteer. And he, he's like, oh, but you're arriving tomorrow. I'm not, I promise. So I was part of a, a scholarship program called the Bonner Scholars Program, which is aimed at low-income and first-generation college students. And so through that, uh, we had the opportunity and the requirement to volunteer. My mom uh, was involved with a website called the Megalithic Portal, um, through which she met a number of residents of the UK, uh, England and Scotland, folks who were sort of uniquely interested in stone circles, uh, so Stonehenge being the best known, but just a, a ton of different stone structures. My mom, being my mom and being wonderful, uh, started asking around when I said I wanted to go over there, you know, does anybody know anyone? Uh, and someone pointed me in the direction of a gentleman who worked at Archeolink, and I sort of wouldn't take no for an answer. Uh, but that was fine because they needed all the help they could get. And so I found myself in this town called Inch in Aberdeenshire, uh, in Scotland. Archaeolink Prehistory Park was a, an interesting place. It was a very small park, so you'd effectively follow a path around the park and you'd start out in the Stone Age and sort of move forward through the Stone Age. Uh, you'd pass, you know, a small stone circle that they'd set up. And then you got to the Bronze Age hut. It was very much a hands-on, just experiential training. In fact, we demoed pewter casting and then also making oat cakes uh, with a group of kids. You just dry it on the stones around the, you know, the hearth fire or whatever campfire you're at. Um, and then you've got something that's going to keep at least for a few days. So it's very much a good food for, you know, uh, hunters, travelers, anybody else who's going to be away from home for a few days. That kind of thing. Aside from the kids, a lot of the visitors were actually not English, not Scottish, not from the British Isles. So uh, we had a number of Dutch tourists. We had a few Japanese tourists. Um, a lot of just continental Europeans of all stripes. In England and in Scotland, you're living with this history so much that going to a place for prehistory is just sort of like, well, do I really want to go somewhere and see something a few hundred or a few thousand years older? Like, I can just go another time. Uh, and there's just this sort of, well, yes, we have our history, but it's all around us. I would not call the Scottish a gourmet people. My opinion here might be uh, sort of enhanced by the fact that I was living off the kitchen. And so really the, the options were pretty limited. Uh, so, you know, they would have the soup of the day. They would have 
sandwiches handmade in the kitchen. So this is not like, you know, pastries flown in from wherever, but uh, if you got bored of the sandwiches in the soup, which after eating those for every meal every day for a month or two you might do, um, was, was fried stuff like veggie nuggets. They didn't have chicken nuggets, but they did have veggie nuggets with peas and corn and so forth. My, my sort of primary experience of food in Scotland for the first uh, month, month and a half I was there was mostly just uh, soup, sandwiches, and vegetable nuggets. I had the privilege because uh, my mom had all these friends from the megalithic portal um, spread out across the UK to actually get to travel a little bit, not just through Scotland, but actually to visit some friends in England. So a gentleman who I only stayed with him for, you know, like half a week. I really do appreciate the experiences he gave me. And that time he took me to see Stonehenge. He also, by the way, offered to run interference for me with a police officer who was there at Stonehenge to prevent people from touching the stones. If I wanted to get up uh, person, you know, up close and personal and touch one of the stones, uh, he promised to try and run interference for me. Uh, which I sort of regret sometimes not taking him up on. <laughs> and everybody my mom knew through the megalithic portal was kind of unique. And so, you know, I, I um, at one point, a friend of my mother's, uh, who goes by Jez, who's an absolutely lovely woman, took me for a trip to see several stone circles, um, took me out for Indian food, and handed me a book about yurts, about, con about constructing a yurt she had purchased that had been badly translated from, I think, Mongolian uh, into English and possibly into Korean along the way. So that was one experience. And then, uh, you know, there was a, another gentleman who uh, actually took me to the Fairport Property Convention, which is a show that's been going on for, I think, decades at this point, often headed by Fairport Convention, the band. Uh, and they were actually performing at full strength for the first time in years. Uh, and so he got me in to see that show. And so I, I want to be clear. These were lovely people, though, for all. I think the most memorable meal was definitely when uh, Jez took me out for the, the Indian meal. I think the thing I ate most of was just uh, chicken tikka masala, although we were, um, you know, all sort of trading dishes. But that was uh, the meal where we were all sort of reading over this book about yurts. And just like, it was laugh out loud funny. Like we were just cracking up at the table. And so it was honestly less about the food uh, although it was the most interesting food uh, I had had since I had, uh, you know, first landed on British soil. It was really a pretty unremarkable uh, Indian restaurant. Going to an Indian restaurant, I feel like, uh, and, and potentially getting a curry uh, is sort of also considered a, like a fundamentally British experience. 
And so it was great to actually go with two people who I had never met before that day. I think overall, I mean, it was a, it was, it gave me a real appreciation for the kindness of these strangers who not only got me this position at Archeolink, uh, where I got to volunteer, but also just showed me around and showed me these stone structures that they were so interested in and that sort of were so central to their lives. It's really a beautiful place and, and it felt like home to me. The traditions of hospitality worldwide are many and varied, and they run a pretty wide gamut from casual inclusion to highly performative ritual. Food plays a feature role in all of these traditions, and is often the threshold guests are invited to cross when entering another's culture. In England and Scotland, when you show up at your host's doorstep, you'll be likely offered tea, provided of course that your host isn't preoccupied with the delivery of quail eggs. In the United Arab Emirates and other Arabic nations, the tradition is not tea but coffee, sometimes brewed with cardamom, saffron, or even rose water. In both of these instances, the gesture is small, but not without symbolic meaning. Coffee and tea both represent health and vitality, and for much of human history have been relatively scarce resources. To expend them for the well-being of a friend, traveler, or even a stranger is a meaningful first step in inviting them into your life. But it doesn't stop with drinks. In Mongolia, the rituals surrounding hospitality involve a variety of foods. Spreads of homemade yak and goat cheeses, sugar cubes, candy, and flour pastries, a staple in Mongolian diets known as bordzig, are laid out for the guests upon arrival. A communal meal is prepared, for which the hosts slaughter the fattest animal in their flock, to prepare a dinner filled with meat-stuffed dumplings. If the guests have cause for celebration, the meal is punctuated with shots of vodka at regular intervals. And even the most ancient and universal hospitality tradition is heavily anchored in food, the bread and salt ceremony. Practiced from Eastern Europe to the Arabian Peninsula, Iran, Germany, the UK, it's even followed throughout the Jewish diaspora and made it all the way into space. The ceremony's details vary across cultures, but at its core, 
It's the presentation of bread, a symbol of health and well-being, and salt, a symbol of preservation and prosperity, to a guest. On the Mir space station, formerly operated by the Soviet Union, cosmonauts received chunks of bread and salt tablets, both upon arriving at the space station and when returning to Earth. At face value, all of these rituals seem to be about feeding and taking care of the physical well-being of the guest, and to some extent that's true. But the bread and salt ceremony in space is likely the best example of the sociological implications of hospitality. What do I mean? Well, (laughs) what I mean is, with coffees, teas, and fatted calves, it's it's pretty easy to draw a direct correlation to hunger or to thirst. The cosmonauts were going to be fed and watered. What the hosts were instead doing was welcoming these travelers into a new way, their own way, of life. The bread and salt are a means of communicating that the guests are not alone in their journey. They are, in a way, an edible invitation to understanding, and a means of communicating that the guests are not alone in their journey. wanted to uh, ask you a couple questions as uh, is form. So what was your sort of first strike opinion about the Scottish people as as a whole? So I guess this is sort of a stereotype, right? That the Scottish are uh, combative people. But it was kind of funny. And this is true in the States as well, right? Like, you have two towns uh, nearby that are school rivals, but then they'll gang up against outsiders and so forth. And it's absolutely the same in Scotland or, or in the UK generally, right? So uh, the Scottish uh, don't even like to take uh, English pound notes sometimes, right? There's very definitely this distinct cultural identity of being Scottish versus being English. And you don't want to get those wrong as a traveler. Uh, at the very least, you'll get some dirty looks. your very first experience with Scottish food. On the way over, uh, one of the flight attendants offered me a drink called Iron Brew. This is fantastic. So there are two parts to this. First, in America, you might call it uh, pop or soda. You might, in you know some part areas of the South, call it Coke uh, as a general term. It turns out in Scotland, they call it lemonade. Uh, soft drinks are lemonade. And so the flight attendant asks, okay, do you want lemonade? I'm like, shh. Sure. Uh, do you have any other drinks? No, no, lemonade. And she goes on to list some soft drinks. I'm like, okay, got that. Uh, what's what's this iron brew? And how is it spelled? 
Uh, and if I remember correctly, it's spelled I-R-N-B-R-U with the numlaut or some kind of punctuation. And it sounded intriguing. Uh, and the best way I can describe it... Have you ever... Do you remember eating a chewable vitamin when you were a kid? Imagine that as a soft drink. It, like, there was a little bit of what I can only describe as, like, a rusty taste, and it's definitely a rusty color. Like, if you've never seen this, I recommend looking it up. But it was a very unique introduction to, uh, Scottish tastes, let's say. So something like Iron Brew, for example, is very much, as I understand it, a Scottish drink and not a British one. Drinking Iron Brew, or at least having had the experience of being hazed into drinking Iron Brew, which I still maintain is the actual use of the beverage, like, it's not it's not quite a haggis-level hazing, but I think it's a, a sort of cultural Stockholm syndrome. We're Scottish, and therefore we like Iron Brew. So that, that was a pretty strange experience. But what was your absolute strangest experience with Scottish food? If I say cheese sandwich to you, um, at least what I'm thinking of when I say it is probably a grilled cheese sandwich. Uh, so melted cheese, uh, you've got some butter on the bread. Um, so it's probably a little bit of a greasy food, uh, but it's definitely a cooked food to me. A cheese sandwich, uh, at least in, in parts of England and parts of Scotland, is uh, potentially just shredded cheese on a bun. And I wasn't expecting that. And at one point I said something to that effect uh, to the gentleman who had, who had taken me to see Stonehenge. Uh, and I found out later that this had gotten back to his wife, uh, who had taken it as sort of a personal affront to her cooking. Uh, it was an experience for me, right? Like, I, I really didn't mean to be rude. And I it didn't occur to me that I was. I was just trying to express to him, because uh, he handed me a sandwich. He was like, do you want ham or cheese? And I was like, I'll take cheese. I was, I'm not, I've never been a big ham person. And I took it, and I was, like, looking at it with, I assume, an expression of surprise on my face. He's like, what, is there something wrong with it? And I was just trying to explain, like, no, I just, I had a different expectation. Not, like, a better or a worse one, but, well, okay, yes, a better one now. But I genuinely wasn't trying to be a jerk about it. Um, I was just like, well, I, I, you said cheese sandwich, and my expectation, culturally, was that it would be a grilled cheese sandwich. And I was a little excited about that. This is not that. Hopefully I phrased it better than that, but I wouldn't guarantee it. Because I was a little bit on the surprise side. It was good cheese. It was fine cheese. It was fine bread. It was just, it was cheese and bread, and the cheese was shredded and on the bread, which was a hamburger roll. It was a, it was a fairly, like depressed-looking sandwich. Jonas, thank you very much for sharing your story. It's been a pleasure having you on the show.
Course Ground is a show about the ways food impacts our lives. This episode's guest was Jonas Wisser. If you don't want to miss the next episode, subscribe to the podcast or drop your email at courseground.com. So it looks like we're going to have to set the record straight on grilled cheese, of all things. Now, the procedure we're going to be following here is a little unorthodox, but stay with me. It's going to work out fantastically. Uh, We'll start from an ingredient side. That's pretty straightforward. What you're going to need is three ounces of extra sharp cheddar cheese for body and flavor, and three ounces of Gruyere for melting capacity. And you're going to need some butter at room temperature for spreading on the bread. From the tool side of things, you're going to need two cast iron skillets that are wider in diameter than the bread. See, I I told you it was a little unorthodox. If you don't have two cast iron skillets, don't worry. You can do this in one cast iron skillet or or any nonstick pan. Okay, so now we're going to start the assembly portion. The first thing you're going to want to do is you're going to want to take both of the cast iron skillets and you're going to want to put them over as high heat as you can manage. Turning your attention to the bread, you're going to want to butter one side of each of four slices of the bread for the tops and bottoms. Then grate both of the cheeses. I know, the tradition is sliced, but trust me, grated cheese has more surface area, which means it's going to melt more smoothly. Assuming that you're operating under the two-skillet model, you're going to want to kill the heat on both and flip one upside down. Put a piece of buttered bread butter side down onto the skillet, top with grated cheese, and then top with another piece of bread butter side up. Repeat for the second sandwich. Then take the other skillet and put it right side up on top of the sandwich. That way you've got hot cast iron compressing the sandwich and grilling it perfectly on both sides. Again, if you're doing this with one skillet, you're going to have to flip, it's going to be uneven, you're going to have to watch it. Doable, but not as good. Three to five minutes later, you will be rewarded with a slightly compressed, perfectly toasted, melty, cheesy sandwich. Cut diagonally, of course, and enjoy. I'm Patrick Perini, and this is Course Ground.